Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Sticker. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. It is Thursday, and you know Thursdays start off with Guy Talk, which I love. I always look forward to gathering with my brothers in Christ and talking about whatever is whatever it is you send our way. So let us know what your questions are or what topics you'd like us to cover. Maybe there's a piece of scripture you'd like us to uh, dig into. Let us know. That text number is 877 933 2484. And this hour is always about you, the listener. So we want to make it as best we can. Let us know if you have any suggestions for us, if there's things that we're doing that you like or things that we're doing that you don't like. We're open to hearing from you. As a matter of fact, I insist. Let us know. 877-933-2484. The power panel today includes Dr. Peter Kapsner, my uh, favorite Lutheran pastors, Tom Parrish and Tom Brock, and the Reverend Justin Jepson. So we'll take a short break and be right back. Connecting your faith to your everyday life. There's nothing I don't appreciate about it. Um, I started listening to the Faith Radio almost exclusively a few years ago because I just love the teaching. Just the truth of God's Word. Everything is just so so sweet to listen to. The teachings, it just really motivates you and keeps you coming back for more. We're growing together. On Faith Radio. You cannot separate the glory from the offense in Christian faith. Christianity is at its heart about a cross and a crown. And they are both embraced by Jesus Christ. And if you embrace him, you cannot embrace the one without the other. Real truth, real hope, Faith Radio. All right, welcome to the show. Boy, on days like this, I'm always filled with gratitude. There's so much to be grateful for every day. I look at what's going on in the world, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of doctors and nurses and hospital staff that are working so hard. It's times like this I wished that I had skills that were useful. Um, but it's really nice to uh, have Guy Talk here. I've got uh, Peter Kapsner, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, and Justin Jepson. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you Good to be with you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Good to be back. So uh, it was quite popular a while back. People would wear bracelets that would have the initials WWJD on it. And, of course, that stands for What Would Jesus Do? Let me ask you this, guys. Is it grandiose to think we know or possible to think we could also act and say what he would? Hmm. No, I, I mean, I, well, I, think I think that's the invitation to, to discipleship as a whole. Um, but, I mean, Jesus didn't say anything throughout the course of his ministry that indicated anything other than he sort of expected his followers to 
increasingly walk and be and teach and talk and demonstrate power and authority and all of those things that he did as well. It's it's his disciples were apprentices in his way of life. And um, anytime you take on an apprentice, there is with the understanding that ultimately they can do the same kinds of things with the same power and authority that you can do as well. And and Jesus seemed relatively clear that he was breathing into them the Holy Spirit to do exactly that kind of work. And to the extent that the scriptures are reliable, and I think they're terribly reliable, even though sometimes people come to different conclusions about what they might be saying, that, that doesn't mean the scriptures are unreliable. It just means their interpretation might be unreliable. But to the extent that that we can see with clarity what Jesus was up to as he taught and acted and, and performed and and did all of what he did, I, I think there is the, the clear invitation that we can do real similar things. And, and that is the heart of the discipleship journey insofar as I understand it. Great answer, Peter. I think this is the hidden yeah, think- secret of Christianity. I mean, what we do is we tell people to repent and receive Jesus and their sins, are, you know, they'll be forgiven and they'll go to heaven. True. But what we don't really talk to them about is that from this moment forward, our goal is to become like Jesus, to think like him, talk like him, because we love him and we want to reflect him. I had an older brother who was 10 years older, great athlete, uh, wonderful guy. Fortunately, he died a number of years ago. But growing up as a kid, I wanted to be just like Doug. And I think that's what we have to get across to Christians. Our goal is not simply to die and go to heaven. Our goal is to reflect Jesus here and now because we know him and we're excited about him. And, you know, Bill, I would say 95% of what God wants you to know, he's already told you. It's in the Bible, which is why we, you know, I read my Bible every day because 95% of what God wants me to know, he's already told me. There is that 5%, like, do I take this job over that job? Do I move to Toledo or do we stay, you know, that kind of stuff you got to wrestle through with the Holy Spirit's leading. But overwhelmingly, God has already told us what he wants from us, and it is in Scripture. And yes, not everything in Scripture is clear, which is why you have Baptists and Lutherans and Catholics and everything. And even the Apostle Paul said in Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, now I know in part, then heaven I shall understand fully. So the Apostle Paul, who knew tons of stuff, even said, I don't know everything. But overwhelmingly, the great majority of God wants us to know he's already told us. Mm. Yeah, I think along with that, it's, you know, really, I feel like I'm just kind of reiterating what the you three already mentioned, but I actually, uh, when I first you know, came to Christ, that was kind of right in the era where those bracelets were really becoming popularized. And I remember, you know, joining my my first FCA Bible study, and those were passed out, and I was, you know, wearing those on the football field or on the baseball diamond. I thought it was so cool, and, you know, being asked one day, well, what, what does that mean? And um, and I said, well, what would Jesus do? I'm like, well, what would he do? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, what would he do? Like, what are you talking about? You know, and, and I, and it, Back to even what Peter was saying and what Tom just was alluding to, I think in order to answer that question, we have to first ask the question WDJD, which is what did Jesus do? So it's looking at his his life and, and his ministry, and then it's that task then of contextualizing that in our own area, in our own lives, and saying, we don't, we don't know what he would do in a situation if we didn't know what he already did do, and what, to Tom's point, what he's already said. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice little chunk of wisdom from all of you. Nice job. Way to get things started. <laughs> <laughs> 
Here's another uh, <laughs> something that came in from a listener. This is out of the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Uh, I know, Tom Parrish, you probably got your Bible in your lap right now. Uh, I do. Uh, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, it says, um, and this is from the uh, English Standard Version, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The question is, what do you think the council is that is referenced in this text? Well, I will tell you, since you quoted from the ESV Bible, I love the ESV study Bible. And if I had that in my lap, I would look it up and ask, what does that word council mean? <laughs> okay. All right. So you so were almost helpful. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, I, I can t- I'm looking at the Greek right now, and the Greek basically says in the New Testament, the council in this reference refers to the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of the Jewish Nation. Okay. Perfect. So, you know, it's putting Which, in the context of what you would understand at that time as to where the authority was. Yeah, and, and I think alongside of that, um, so much of Jesus' concern and, and, and the overarching text of Matthew 5, and it's it's always so difficult to just take— a passage or two out of context, because um, these, these weren't written in chapter and verses when Matthew first wrote. We eventually assigned chapter and verses later, so if we're not careful, it's really easy to sort of divorce it from the overall context and, under, and maybe miss the point that in the, in the whole Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus is up to is he, he's all about saying, you know, look, you guys have been caught up in using external behaviors um, as as the boundary markers for your faith and, and understanding that your faith is defined by how you're acting out in the world. And what he what he continues to, to emphasize is, but I've come that, that the heart would be transformed. And so you may have heard it said, do not commit adultery, and obviously don't. But what I'm telling you right now is that if you're lusting after women in your heart, well, you're, you're right on that same p- pathway of adultery. And so stop living such a hypocritical life where your interior hidden world is different than your exterior uh, behavior-driven kind of world. And so with the council here being the Sanhedrin, what Jesus is suggesting, I I would guess, is that um, you will be dragged in front of the council if you commit murder. That's who you're going to because they're going to render judgment upon you. But what I'm telling you now is that you should also end up in front of that very council if you end up hating your brother or insulting people or calling people fools because the same kind of interior world of the heart that could lead to murder is is being fanned in, in your interior world just when you hate people, when you're insulting people. What, what you carry on the inside is going to leak its way to the outside, and all of it, behavior and internal dispositions, is subject to the council. Hmm. I think it says, hmm. though, Bill, at the end, doesn't it, shall be liable to the judgment of fire. Yes, yes, yes. Which would mean (laughs) beyond the Sanhedrin, the ultimate judgment, which would be the judgment of God, which is why I don't call people fool. I mean, that verse is pretty heavy duty. And I'm not saying you can never use the word fool because Paul did and James did and Jesus did. But you got to be very careful on on your language, according to that verse. I agree. Let me take a little break. Guy Mm -hmm. Talk's underway. Let me know what questions you might have for... The panel to chew on, 877-933-2484. Love your questions. Love your comments. 877-93-FAITH. Be right back. 
back with Guide Talk. Dr. Peter Kapsner, pastors Tom Parrish, Tom Brock, and Justin Jepson. Let us know what questions you have for us. All right, this was interesting. I was talking to Rebecca about this earlier. In Mark chapter 5, verse 30, um, it says that, and Jesus immediately knowing in himself, and in the King James it says, that virtue had gone out of him. Virtue. We always think that power had gone out of him. King James says virtue, and I found it interesting. I did a little bit of study on that word, and the word virtue is used in the old medical sense, the power or force which brings out a certain definite result. You guys ever heard that? That his virtue went out of him? No, I hadn't. Nice. I stumped I'm not familiar with that translation. You got it. Yeah, that's King James. Okay. So when we're yeah, doing... what's interesting about the, the King James, too, is that I think it's widely regarded to be the closest to the original Greek, having been the first sort of translation through multiple languages. So as, as much as the King James can be hard to read at times, um, boy, it is incredibly helpful for getting into the nuances of the text if you're going to stay within the English, because it really does, it, it's pretty faithful to the Greek. So, Bill, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that either before. How, how did you say that? It's power that's going to affect yeah, I'll, something? Yeah, I'll read it again. Um, yeah. The, the virtue had gone out of him. That's what it says. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about, turned him about in the, in, and said, who touched my clothes? The virtue, literally knowing fully in himself the virtue had gone out of him. The word virtue is used in the old medical sense, the power or force, which brings about a certain definite result. Wow. Mm. You know, I, I wouldn't say the King James is the most true to the Greek and the Hebrew. I mean, I think it, it's a good translation. And to what they had in the 1600s, that's true. But, I, I mean, I, nothing wrong with using the King James, but I think I would use the ESV or the NASB to really get in modern English what exactly was being said. Well, it's interesting because the word translated power, and I'm sorry, I'm I'm not trying to be into the Greek all the time, is the word we get for dynamite. It's the word dunamis. Dunamis, yeah. Dynamis. Mm-hmm. And what you have there is an expression of power, uh, amazing power coming out of him. Virtue, I'm wondering how much that has to do with the, uh, you know, the 17th century, uh, when the, or, you know, that period of time when this was written as compared to what the Greek word actually meant. Very interesting. I'll have to do some more research. Mm-hmm. All right. Here's another question from... Dave in St. Paul, he says, let me see here, um, I'm wondering what the guys think about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, as to who the restrainer is, who restrains the lawless one. Mm-hmm. There are several interpretations of who this is, the Blessed Holy Spirit, the Church, the government, and that's the question. Let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And that's pro- that chapter is the most thorough teaching about the Antichrist. And mm-hmm. so it teaches that, yeah, the Antichrist is coming, but something right now is restraining the Antichrist from appearing. And what is that? And 
like you said there, Bill, there's about three or four or five interpretations. Right. I think some people think it was the government was holding him back. I think probably just God is holding him back. But some people say it is the uh, church or the Holy Spirit specifically. Uh, but Paul, I mean, it's not really clear what the answer is. That's a good answer, coming from a guy well, who's been making pottery all day. I have been, like like crazy. <laughs> Why did I so. know that? <laughs> you can smell. I can. But anyway. All right, here's another question, gentlemen. How can we know if we heard an instruction from God as compared to what is just coming from human intellect or mere wants? Especially when there are things in Scripture that make it seem like it could be either. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think without getting dogmatic about it um, in terms of what are the criteria, right? But I, I think one of the things is is persistence over time, um, something that continues to sort of stick with you and stick with you. Uh, I think the counsel of others is incredibly important um, yes. because they're probably not going to have the same kind of dispositions and passions and maybe interest, inherent interest in whatever it is that, that you're wrestling with. And so they can see it with a bit more dispassion uh, as well. So I, I would say... Those are two ways. Again, I wouldn't be dogmatic about those ways. I certainly wouldn't write a book that these are the two ways to do it. But but I would suggest that um, persistence and the counsel of others is are, are two helpful tools in the process of discernment. Mm-hmm. Yep. In an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Like like Peter just said, that's from Proverbs. And I, I get nervous when people have words from the Lord all the time, because so often <laughs> they're not words from the Lord. And people, and they're not trying to be evil, but they mistake their strong emotions for the Holy Spirit, and you can't do that. Just, you got to be careful on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also, I mean, it, this is kind of implied in the question. Um, it, it, again, you're, we're always testing what we're hearing, right, and what we believe God has, has spoken by what, he, by what God is saying, by what He's already said. And so I think we're testing this against the backdrop of scripture and you know and i think if if i if i am much in the word of god then then i think i'm positioned in such a way you know to know um what's on god's heart you're going back to the wwjd i mean knowing what jesus would do or what he would say implies that there's a relationship with him to the degree of which i would actually have a working knowledge of that you know and i think um um, I think it was Mark Batterson, a, pa- a pastor, who once said, you know, don't expect a word from God unless you're in the word of God. And oh, I, I like think that's that. a, just a, a good way to remember that if I'm getting a, this impression from the, and I believe it's the Lord, I'm not, I'm not much in the word of God, then that would cause a, a red flag in my heart um, to know that, that maybe this, this is not of God. So. Well, isn't it interesting that the uh, image of the church is the body of Christ? And you think about the human body. Uh, whatever you think in your brain does have an effect on what you do with your hands and your feet and the rest of your body. They all go together. And that's where the, the many counselors is incredibly wise. The problem is we have personalized Christianity to the point where it's become private, not personal. And when people have private interpretations, and there's a lot of this today that's in books that are written and sermons that I've heard, it's so private that nobody else would get it, but the person is convinced that the Lord has given them that word. And that's where we need to say, I trusted Jesus fully, and I'm also going to put trust in my brothers and sisters in Christ and listen to them as well. Mm-hmm. I think the hard part that goes with it, too, just on the on the pendulum swing the other way, is you think about the prophets in the Old Testament, and they, they clearly 
sensed a, a word of the Lord of some kind that um, they, they really didn't have the confirmation of a community. You know, there wasn't people coming around mm-hmm. saying, hey, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, I'm hearing the same thing here. <laughs> uh, and uh-huh. and so in that, you know, is, is there space? And boy, I, I hardly even dare to articulate it, but is there ever space, is there ever time when, you know, you really are going against the grain um, as an individual and, and you, it's it's a lonely perch? Um, that That's a difficult thing to say out loud because as you guys have already cautioned as well how many people are saying hey i've got a word from the lord and it's not even close you know i would say it's the the deep minority that um it would happen in a a circumstance where maybe one or perhaps just two people uh, are really hearing something that that other people aren't and it's that process of discernment is tricky uh to say the least Uh well the bible's gonna absolutely go ahead pete justin Oh, I was just—I was just going to say along, along with that. I mean, I—I decided to pull this up. I have—I have a list of seven things to ask, uh, questions to clarify if God has spoken. We've already mentioned a couple of them, but um, a couple of them is: Will it produce good fruit, and will it produce spiritual growth? And and I've learned that if the word that I'm hearing, let's say if it's an action, if it's something I'm supposed to do or something I'm supposed to say, um, if it, if it's uncomfortable. And if it's inconvenient in terms of it's, I have to take it's. There's a sacrifice involved. For me, I've learned personally that that usually means the Lord's pitching a strike and He wants me to take a swing at it, so to speak. Because the producing of good fruit and spiritual growth often lies in those realms of personally inconveniencing us and making us uncomfortable, um, and in that experiencing the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And so. I mean, I think we need to recognize our own fallibility and be humble and always admit that, but we can also trust God's ability to keep us from falling more than we trust our ability to fall. I want to get on to what Peter said, and I appreciate what you said, Peter, a lot. Here's the thinking. The difference between the prophetic word and an individual word, I had a woman come to me years ago, and she said, I'm sick of my husband, I don't like what he's doing, and the Lord told me I could divorce him. Now, that's a personal word. And I could not agree with her in that sense. And neither could the church, mm-hmm. neither with the word of God, that she can just do that because she's tired of him. Unfortunately, it was her fourth husband, I found out. So that was a different matter. If a prophet brings a word from the Lord, then the Bible already prescribes what happens. Because a lot of people can bring words and say it's from the Lord, and they could be ostracized. But the measure of it is, does it come true? And yeah. does it come true that mm-hmm. everyone can see it? If it does, it's truly of the Lord. However, the prophets rarely get that recognition you know, at the time they say it, or even in their lifetime, it's after they're dead that they're usually exalted. So there is a balance between the two. All right, I got to take know. a little break. Peter, okay. if you could hold that thought, I'd appreciate it. We're just coming up against a hard break. Let us know what questions you have for uh, the power panel today. 877 933 2484. That's a text message. 877 933 2484. All right, we are back with Guy Talk. Awfully glad to have Peter Kapsner. On the show, Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson. That's the power panel today. Let us know what the questions are. 877-93-FAITH. Here's a question that just came in. I would like to know, what does the Bible say about 
abuse and infidelity in a marriage, physical, emotional, and verbal, to be specific. I got a letter this week or an email this week from a lady who has an abusive husband, and now they're living separately, and she says, I'm a Christian. The last thing I want is divorce, but uh, is it okay for us to be separated because he periodically hits me? And in my, everybody's, I mean, the church is sadly all over the board on the divorce issue, but I told her the way I understand 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew uh, 19, the only two, um, well, for me, you can divorce if there's been adultery, uh, but it doesn't, the way I understand scripture, that doesn't mean you can get remarried. I just stay single. But I said, I said to her, for the sake of your safety, if you have to be um, separate, then okay. But what Paul says in First Corinthians seven is, if don't get divorced, do not separate from your spouse. But if you do, two options: either remain single or be reconciled to your spouse. So, you know, for the sake of her health, if she has to be separated from him, and uh, then I understand it. Um, but boy, we live in such a divorce-drenched culture. And I just think we need to hear what Jesus said, that if you get divorced and marry somebody new, you're committing adultery. And we we just, you know, uh, pastors are divorced and remarried and a lot, lot of parishioners. And it's just uh, kind of the scandal in the church these days. I think there's an interesting clue in 1 Corinthians 7.39. It says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think the admonition about, you know, don't be unequally yoked is something we don't listen to well in Christianity. And mm-hmm. as a young person, you know, when I fell in love with my wife, her relationship with Jesus was almost meaningless to me. It was how good looking she was and how much she stimulated me. Now, that's stupid, but that's what you do when you're 20 years old and you're not thinking. We have to, as a Christian community, help especially young people understand that being unequally yoked creates a whole set of issues. Because I know when I have two Christians who come to me for counseling, and there's verbal abuse, usually not physical, but verbal abuse, I can literally separate the woman and the man and let the women, the woman set with women and the men set with Christian men, two or three of them, who will then be their counselors. And you know what? It works. It's a powerful tool when somebody looks you in the face and said, how are you behaving? Why are you behaving this way? This doesn't represent Jesus. And, you know, with, with your earlier question, Bill, about how do you know the voice of God versus your own feelings, that, that the text that Tom just quoted about not being unequally yoked, and you hear people say, well, you know, I know I'm supposed to only marry a Christian, but, you know, I, I love my boyfriend, I prayed about it, and I feel right about it. And that is very dangerous because you're, put, you're putting your feelings over the written word of God. And that's why, one reason, we have a lot of divorce in the church. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, this is, um, I ended up getting chucked into a class that, I, that I've referenced before and had no business teaching at all. And so this um, this is the class on, on gender relationships and sexuality. And, and Students ask a lot of pretty penetrating questions, as you'd imagine, and and most of the time, especially in the first three to four years of teaching the class, I'd have to say, "Gosh, I don't, I don't really know. I have to go research that." And um, another church came to me at one point, just a pastoral colleague, and said, "You know, we're writing policy on divorce now. Can you go over some of these documents and what do you think?" And and I guess what I didn't realize, 
until digging into it further, is how many different views that the Toms have referenced related to divorce and, and how many different scriptural viewpoints. You have everything from the Catholic Church and um, some, some very conservative reform traditions, uh, maybe from sort of pastors like John Piper and others who would say that there really is no such thing as divorce, even if you file with the state of Minnesota uh, or whatever state in which you live. The state doesn't really have any power to grant anything that God has brought together. Uh, and so there really is no such thing as divorce. That would be one position that, that some would hold to the scriptures. Other positions would be that you can get divorced, uh, but you can't get remarried. Others would be that if, you, if there's infidelity, then you do have grounds for divorce. But that doesn't really hold up to an understanding of what, what Jesus was describing with infidelity in, in that Matthew passage. And then other churches would say, well, as long as there is a genuine heart of repentance— you're free to um, marry again. And and they're all appealing to Scripture uh, and certain understandings of Scripture mm -hmm. related to it. I think, Bill, out of all the topics that, that I would teach in that class, and, and that would include gender fluidity and uh, same-gender relationships, um, pornography and uh, singleness and all these different things, the divorce-remarriage one is by far, I think, the hardest one uh, to see because I have people that I know that— they're in a, a second marriage or they're in, a, they're in a marriage beyond their first marriage. And God, from all intents and purposes, they're doing incredible kingdom work on behalf of, of the Father. And yet I have the same stuff as Tom's caution of saying, well, I just feel like I should get divorced. And I mean, I, I don't know if there's a one-size-fits-all. Scripture is maybe less clear than we would like it to be in some of these areas. Um, and I, I can sympathize with everything from the Catholic Church saying there is no such thing as divorce all the way down to repentance. And, and I don't really know how easy or hard it is to land on these things. And, and to the woman's question, um, in the case of abuse, Scripture is terribly unclear about that. And, and it doesn't say anything either way. So I, I think it would need to be outside the context of this show to give somebody you know, a more thoughtful mm -hmm. and, and extended answer dealing with the circumstances. I would just fear for the woman asking the question of, of looking for you know, an answer either way in the context of, of what we're talking about today. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I would say along with that, I, yeah, this is such a, a, a complex and, and mysterious, Mr. Really difficult and delicate situation and is uh, as, as unclear sometimes as the scripture is maybe regarding specifically decisions here, you know, again, going back, what would Jesus do in this situation? Um, we also know what, what, Scripture is very clear about, you know, repentance and reconciliation um, and restoration and peace. Um, and that's not to say that that means someone should remain married after maybe there's been extreme infidelity or abuse. But in my, in my experience, even as a, as a pastor as well, when there was abuse in a marriage, I always personally counseled that there would be a period of separation that each, each, each spouse would get couple would, would get counseling. Um, sometimes it's treatment for a particular thing and, and have the goal of reconciliation, have the goal of restoration. But yet that, uh, that isn't always the, the reality. And along with Peter, I know where that's the case where there has been a divorce and there's been a remarriage, uh, remarriage and then there's a, a new kid. And you look at all of what God does in the midst of that mess, whether that person should have gotten divorced or not, um, we, we can entrust God is greater than our inability sometimes to follow him faithfully. And he's able to redeem whatever the situation is. All right. Do you guys want to keep your, your marriage counseling hats on for another question? Sure. <laughs> My ex-husband and I were married in 2015 and separated after just four months. 
We reconciled shortly thereafter and divorced after just one year of marriage. We made multiple attempts to reconcile since then, which were all unsuccessful. Is this God's way of showing we're not meant to be together because we only get so far and then it stops? We love each other, but have a lot of differences, and it almost seems obvious, but I'd like to know if this is God's will for us both. I would like to hear from this woman uh, if she could answer this question. How much praying did you and your husband do together? Because I think a lot of the problem is, personality-wise, we can rub each other the wrong way all the time. And you're only going to get so far out of human effort. But in my 40 years of counseling and marital counseling, if I could get couples to pray together, guess what? They would start confessing sins to one another. They would start repenting before one another because the Holy Spirit goes to work on them. So uh, I think once Mm -hmm. the choice is made, you've made it. But now would you give it to the Mm -hmm. Lord? Mm-hmm. Good comment, Tom. Yeah, I, I really, <laughs> excuse me, I, I, I agree and resonate with that. And, and again, I think going back to the standpoint of divorce being the last last possible case scenario, um, it's hard to know how to answer and to counsel without any more information, which I know is hard to give over on, on public radio. But I, I would say for the, for the most part, I would say divorce is not in the will of God. Um, but I would need to know more information um, regarding what type of, you know, what was going on, what they sought help for. Um, But I think it, I think it is possible. (laughs) It is possible to marry the wrong person, right? Anyone can get married. Getting married is easy. That's the easy part. Um, But, but having a a marriage that's characterized by love uh, and enduring faithfulness and unity and oneness, that's really, really hard. And I think sometimes people, go into marriage with a complete wrong set of expectations. And then once it gets really hard, that really the other person's not the problem. It's really their own heart and the, and the work that the Lord needs to do at the heart level, which, again, that happens, path, prayer is the pathway for that transformation to, to occur. So um, it's, it's hard to know, yeah, how to, how to answer that without more information. But I would say, I don't want to put a statistic on it, but I'd say for majority of the the majority of the of, of the of the scenarios and, and the circumstances that I've come across and, and been a part of walking alongside of couples, um, I think divorce is not in the, in the will of God. Another uh, listener jumped in with 1 Corinthians 7.15, but if the mm-hmm. unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in mm-hmm. such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, think I, actually, so, I actually had that open, yeah. Some some people ahead, though, take that. Some people take that to mean that if my unbeliever's uh, spouse wants to leave, then they're not bound. Meaning, I can marry somebody new. But Paul has just said in the same chapter, don't get divorced. But if you do, you got two options: remain single or get reconciled to your spouse. He didn't say or find somebody new. And so, if you look at that context of First Corinthians seven. Paul is talking about a brother or sister is not bound in the sense you're not bound to stay in a marriage and try to make it work if your unbelieving partner has left. I think that's what that means. So I don't I don't see another reason to leave. So just again, <laughs> I know this is hard, but why is it that 100 years ago almost nobody got divorced in our in our culture and today it's huge? And I think. A big part of it is the church is not being the church on this issue. Mm-hmm. 
It's hard to. I, I mean, I it, it when I was over my church for 29 years, it's hard to bring it up and it's hard to preach on it because you're preaching to people that you love, who have, uh, uh, you know, they're on their third spouse or whatever. But you still got to do it. And the fact that we've got so much divorce in the church, a big part of that is the pastors won't talk about it. Yeah, the woman, uh, the caller that said, my husband and I were married in 2015 and separated after just four months, and you know, they tried that. She uh, also added then that he was a pastor and led me to the Lord. Then he fell off. I suggested yeah. praying, counseling, listening to tapes, etc. I was willing, but he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then, then uh, if, if he's not willing, he's insisting on breaking the marriage, then you are not bound, First Corinthians 7, to try to make it work if he's taken off. Mm. But I don't think that means, and you're free to find somebody new. Okay. Again, I, the chapter to study slowly and carefully is First Corinthians 7 and Matthew chapter 19. And another listener jumped in with, praying in relationships is the much-needed glue that holds them together. It is hard to be mad at someone when you pray for and with them. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's really true. And and Bill, I, I think when you're praying like that too, um, the first time we see the marriage covenant sort of show up in the biblical text, it's it's described as the one flesh covenant in Genesis two. And what's interesting about that passage is that the man and the woman there are it, it's happening in the context that they have a bigger call on their lives than just the idea of hey, I hope we can have some fun in life, enjoy the same things, maybe travel a bit, go see some movies, you know, and, and that we have some companionship together. There really is this constant wondering, what does God have them together for on behalf of stewarding uh, his world? And yeah. and so when you have a larger call on your life, when you see your marriage as part of a larger call to participate in God's kingdom, then, you know, the, the, the caller said, you know, we just couldn't get there. Well, where is there? Is there that I'm going to just have this beautiful, fun, romantic romp through life with somebody else? Or is there that we're together because we're participating in something that's bigger than the both of us. And and if the, the latter is true, then you do need to be people of prayer and discernment together, knowing that God is holding you together for a purpose that's much bigger than yourself. All right, let me take a little break. Uh-huh. Guide Talk's happening. Let me know if you've got a question or a comment. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Guide Talk. We've got Peter Kapsner, the Toms, Tom Parrish, Tom Brock, and Justin Jepson. All amazing in their own way. All right, here's a question. Uh, is it possible that social distancing is an example of how adept Satan is at persuading us to call evil behavior good? For example, valuing the mortal body above the soul. Um, you guys still there? Yeah. yeah, we're here. Okay. Yeah, we're thinking this I one through. The <laughs> yeah, when, when, I hear, when I hear of pastors that say, you know, we have faith, so you come to our church, and we're going to defy the, the government, and we're going to gather together, trust the Lord will take care of us. Well, God also gave us a brain, and he asks us not just mm-hmm. to have faith. He also asks us to have wisdom. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. Romans 13 says you submit to the government. So I, I some of this— 
some of these pastors, and I think it's happening almost nowhere, but sadly the media blows it up. They'll find some Christians who are being kind of cuckoo on this and making them look awful. But, um, you know, I, I, I think it's fine to stay away from church until we are able to go back and not infect each other. Okay. And, and mm-hmm. that's, not a, that's not a lack of faith. It's using what God calls wisdom. All right, we're getting, back, uh-huh. we're getting back to marriage and divorce now, if you don't mind. Um, a listener said, okay, so husband cheats and leaves the marriage for the other woman. Divorce happens, and the ex-wife stays single for the remainder of her life? Just looking for clarification. That, well, that, that, would, that be would be my, one view. You know, that, that's, my, that's my view, you know, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's not, not supported by, by an interpretation of Scripture, but... Um, you know, other people would suggest that uh, you have to look pretty carefully at what was going on in the community and that, that Paul may not have been writing to create new kingdom principles in mind for all circumstances and situations. He was addressing certain things that were going on there uh, related to women and property and values. And, and again, I'm not necessarily espousing that. I'm just saying that uh, Tom has rightfully articulated one uh, pretty common view within the church, but there are other views about how to handle that passage as well. You know, it's interesting because uh, it's how the Lord works in this. Let me tell you a true story. My mother, uh, her first husband tried to murder her. He had another woman pregnant. She had a five-year-old child and one on the way. He tried to drown her in Lake Erie. Uh, She survived because an emergency room nurse came walking along the beach in 1944, and he panicked and said she was drowning. A couple of years later, my dad come home from World War II, meets my mom. Three months later, they get married. I come along four years later. Now, I don't know if that's a justification for me being here, but the point of it is that even in the midst of as horrible as this can be and against God's will, the good news is that Jesus still is redemptive even to those that can't stay single or have to be in another relationship. But the prayer is you need to find, if you do, you need to find somebody that's going to honor the Lord and walk with them. And it's a tough journey. I'm not going to kid you, but I'll be real honest. I'm thankful I'm here. Mm-hmm. Another comment mm-hmm. that said, the Bible says clearly to love one another, abuse, verbal, physical, sexual, emotional, financial, is domestic violence. The first commandment, the second commandment, Jesus wants us to love one another, not abuse one another. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. But I, what? There's like four financial. So, you know, you can, it, that's kind of like abortion. What's my reason for an abortion? Well, it's financially, it's, you know, it's like we find excuses for everything to justify sure. our sin. And, and I, I'm not like, like if somebody's listening to this and they got divorced and they got remarried, I'm not saying you should divorce that person then and be single. But if you're in that marriage, I mean, First Corinthians 6, Paul says, uh, you know, some of you were adulterers, but you were washed. I would, if, if I was divorced and remarried, I'd ask forgiveness for that. Mm-hmm. But the way I understand First Corinthians six, I'd stay in that relationship. I wouldn't divorce the second spouse. And and like Tom just said, you know, Tom's the product of a second marriage. God can bless a second marriage, but if you're coming to me as a pastor asking me to do that, I can't say yes to that because I'm helping you do something. The fact that God can redeem something later and even bless a second marriage is not a reason to violate His will and go ahead and, and, and do the second marriage. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And another comment yeah. that came in is this conversation is from a male's perspective. I wonder if there uh-huh. were women on the panel, how different this conversation would be. 
The answer is quite different, I would imagine. <laughs> well, I hope it's coming from a biblical perspective. Right. And not just a male perspective, because if I simply as a pastor, speaking for Jesus, can only represent males, then I'm not going to be a pastor anymore. Good point. Mm-hmm. Another comment that came in, which I found interesting, mm-hmm. is the comment about the lack of divorce 100 years ago, or even 50 years ago. Were there safe houses for abused spouses? Were there social services to help feed children of abuse or alcoholism? I mean, there's a lot more resources for women now. There's places to go if you've been abused. And I think 150 years ago, maybe there was fewer places to go. I think that's the point the listener was making. Well, the, the mm-hmm. point is, it was the church that realized there was a void and stepped in and started the ministries toward orphans, started the ministry toward abused women. You know, you go back to the history of any of these organizations today that are so secularized, they had a Christian basis almost at every place they started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think when you look back, Bill, I know the numbers are, it's about 6% or so. It was the historic figure that was referenced around 1900 of, of the divorce rate. And that was that was very stable up until about uh, the 1970s. I think it was the ni- mid-1970s that you see just the skyrocket to north of 50 to maybe 57% uh, divorce rate before it kind of came back down again a little bit. And when you see such an anomaly in statistics like that, you have to ask the question, so so why did it do that? What what was going on and what was happening? And and there, there's a number of different variables insofar as I understand them back then. One of them is that um, women did become increasingly empowered uh, where they had been oppressed and, and uh, maybe didn't have the, the kind of opportunities and kind of freedoms uh, within the life of the home. And, and so in those places, women had more opportunities to leave really difficult marriages and abusive marriages and, and had places to go, as the listener caller referenced. But, uh, but it would be overly simplistic to suggest um, that that had been going on at a 57% rate in the 1850s. And the only reason why I have 6% is women didn't have anywhere to go. It's, it, it's, it's one factor and a definite one. But that also was the era of Woodstock. It was the also of the era of the embrace of open and free sexuality and multiple partners that you would have had coming into a marriage that was beginning to be embraced. And when you engage in a sexual relationship with somebody, there's a covenant that happens there uh, between the two of you, whether you intend it to be that way or not. And um, in working with couples and, in, and again, in teaching sexuality, one of the things that really rips apart marriages and, and allows marriages to not work the way that they could work is when you have a past, if you haven't dealt with that past, if you haven't asked for freedom from that past and breaking some of that past, you take it into your existing relationship. And so the 1970s came right on the heels of the 1960s with Woodstock and free love and everything. And and there was this sort of move to say, hey, you know, this this whole relationship thing is about me and it's about my satisfaction. And it's about uh, I better get what I want out of this relationship. And if I don't, I can just bail. So there's lots of reasons why the divorce rate went up. And, and I certainly sympathize with the reasons that in, include the fact that women should be allowed uh, in increasing ways to find freedom and safety when when the relationship is violent and abusive. But but that only accounts for a small percentage of the rise from 6% to 57%. Much more of it has to do with social empowerment and an emphasis on individualism. Hmm. All right, we're down to two minutes. Gentlemen, I've got to throw out one more question. Listener says, recommendations on dealing with an unbelieving coworker that just drives me absolutely crazy. I feel like I'm constantly praying for humility and failing. Hmm. Hmm. 
Well, guys, we've been doing this with Bill for quite a while. What would you suggest? (laughs) (laughs) We're not getting anywhere, so I don't know. We have nothing to offer. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I I think that's what we said earlier with in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. Do you have somebody you can pray with about this certain person at work? Somebody that, you know, you regular, you know, maybe you're praying alone, but to get another person that you pray with about your attitude when you go into the office, uh, get another person regularly praying with you about this situation, because not only will you get the stronger prayer, you'll also probably get some advice on, on how to handle things. All right, gentlemen, mm-hmm. it's been interesting. I got a lot more comments coming in. Uh, I don't have time to discuss them with you. I'll throw out a couple. I, uh, one of the listeners re- was referring to the selfless behavior of Christians during the Black Plague, which is now considered irresponsible and selfish. And uh, another listener said, um, it's not fair to compare with abortion. It's a violation of God's will to hate and abuse. So certainly uh, had some spirited uh, contributors to the show today. Thank you so much for uh, texting in. And thanks uh, to the guys for doing another episode of Guy Talk. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Uh, I will definitely have to process with this uh, with you guys off air. (laughs) This has been interesting. All right, that wraps up Hour 1. Coming up uh, in Hour 2, that's just ahead. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.